Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 118 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Hey, if you've ever struggled with like turning a church around, you are going to love today's guests. And I know we've got some Roman Catholic listeners, so this is going to be great because this is the first time I've had a Roman Catholic priest on as a guest. And if you have heard of James Mallon, you're going to know why. I met him uh, in 2015 at a conference I was speaking at in Moncton, New Brunswick in Canada, my home country. And Father James is doing unbelievable things in the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, if you went there, even as, you know, an evangelical, uh, you know, conservative like I would be, if you go to his church, you're like, wow, I am impressed. And I think you're going to love hearing from him. He's got a passion for the church. He's got a passion for reaching people. He's got a passion for seeing really local congregations completely revitalized, which is his story. And so regardless of the denominational context you find yourself in, I think you're going to find a lot of hope and a lot of life in the conversation today. Hey, can you believe that we are like, Halfway through December. Oh my goodness. And I know you barely have time to listen to a podcast today. So I'm really glad that you're tuning in, but I am super excited because right now I've got a resource for you that we have just released called The High Impact Leader that I think is going to help you with your time, energy, and priority management in 2017. You ever wonder like, how is next year going to be different than this year? I've asked that question. And if you've ever struggled with like trying to be off, when you're supposed to be off and getting your most important priorities done ahead of time, not in the margins afterwards, well, you're not alone. In fact, I've been in leadership for almost 22 years now in in the church world. And for the first decade as our church was growing, I just kept thinking it was all about time management. But the problem with time management is you eventually run out of efficiencies. I mean, you're like, okay, I've, I've, I've done everything I know how to do. And they are just not printing more hours in my calendar. Like I'm not getting an extra day a week. I'm not getting an extra hour a day and I don't know what to do. And I found myself in that place. And actually, I ended up burning out. Uh, It was not a good story. That was a decade ago. And in the last decade, what I've done is I've figured out, you know, I got to make some changes, some permanent changes. And so I've been focusing my life on time management energy management, which is huge. And not a lot of people talk about that, but I kind of been experimenting with that. And then priority management, moving from being a reactive leader to a proactive leader. So what's happened in the last decade? Well, our church has doubled in size. Uh, I have been able to, I spent all my thirties trying to figure out, I want to write a book. I want to write a book. Didn't have the time, didn't know how to do it. I published three books. I published two courses. Uh, I speak a lot more. Uh, and I'm still extremely happily married. I actually have more family time. And uh, it's been amazing. It's been an incredible journey. And I got asked all the time by you and, and by anybody I would talk to, like, how do you get it all done? And I, I eventually got thinking about that. And about a year ago, started writing down some of the tips and tricks that I've learned and, and actually some of the principles I've lived my life by. And that is what is behind the High Impact Leader course. So Here's what I really believe. If you end up taking the High Impact Leader course, I think you're going to have a better 2017. I think you will get three hours a week back. And I'm still at the point where I'm going to say, I think some of you 
will actually find three extra hours a day. Those are hours that you can be at home with your family, where you can be working on your message, where you can be you know, getting into an exercise regime, whatever. So here's the deal. The High Impact Leader course is available until, are you ready for this, Thursday, December 15th at the super low early bird rate. That's 97 US dollars, 9717 Canadian for Canadian listeners. Thursday, that price goes away. In fact, we're going to close the course on Thursday. So if you haven't signed up yet, it's an online course, 10 modules, and I think it can revolutionize your 2017. So we want to make you aware of that, make that available to you. That price will not come back. It is going to go up. It'll be available in the future, but it'll be more expensive. So $97, super early bird rate. You can go to the high impact leader dot com or just go to kerryneuhoff.com and you can find all the information there. So, hey, wanted to let you know about that. I really hope we'll get some feedback from you about the changes that you're making in your life. And in the meantime, let's talk about changes you're going to make in your church. And here is my conversation with James Mallon. Well, welcome to the podcast, Father James. It's so good to have you and uh, good to connect again. We met last year on the East Coast of Canada, did we not? We did, yes. And I believe it was a very stormy, snowy morning. It was. It was. I think Halifax, literally, everyone has these stereotypes every time. Most of the listeners of this podcast live in the U.S., and that's about 85% of the listeners. And so when I talk to, as I do almost every day, Americans, they're like, it's cold up there or whatever. But the weekend that I was in Halifax, we literally had 10 feet of snow. Like, that's yep. not an exaggeration, is yep, it? That's right. That's right. It was one of the worst snowstorms of the, of the year, yeah. of no, for, for a number of years, for sure. Yeah, yeah, maybe in history, but it's much warmer now. It's like 85 degrees where you are on the East Coast in Halifax, Nova Scotia. It's like 85, 90 here north of Toronto. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, there we go. We're just breaking some stereotypes down. Um, tell us a little bit, Father James. You're actually, I think, to my knowledge, my first Roman Catholic guest on the podcast. So welcome. Well, I'm honored. Thank you. And I was a Protestant guest at your church that Sunday and That's treated right. royally and blown away <laughs> by what I saw absolutely blown away by the way I saw God at work in your parish, in your church, through your ministry, and we'll talk about sort of the global impact uh, that you're having as well. Tell us a little bit about your background, um, how you became passionate about helping Roman Catholic parishes move from maintenance to mission. And I would just say to all of our listeners, I just believe everything that you're going to talk about is 100% transferable to any Protestant setting, evangelical setting, charismatic setting, Roman Catholic setting, Orthodox setting. I mean, we are way more united uh, mm -hmm. than we are divided That's by right. the issues that surround us. That's right. Well, I think it all goes back to the fact that when I was uh, 17 years old, I had a powerful conversion experience. I'd always been a churchgoer. I always mm -hmm. raised a family that, you know, that you said your prayers before you went to bed. But at the age of 17, I discovered something I didn't know was possible. It was a personal encounter with the Lord, a powerful experience of the Holy Spirit that really just awakened my 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 faith. And from that moment onwards, I began to hunger for, for community. And I hung out with a group of young Catholics who had had similar experiences. And it was the first time I saw uh, a, a, a difference in this experience of faith in live faith compared to my, my parish. Because mm. when I showed up at my parish and started talking about Jesus and was really, a, you know, uh, enthusiastic, I got the distinct feeling that they thought I was a bit odd. <laughs> and, and from then on, I basically for the years that followed, uh, I experienced uh, 
essential Christian life, you know, community and in and, and discipleship and formation and in worship and in, in, in this group of people that was outside of a parish. And generally for, for decades in the Catholic Church, uh, the impulses of renewal have come through what we call movements. So kind of like parachurch organizations, the charismatic renewal, the, the, the uh, crucial movement. And that's where renewal is present. That's where people experience changed lives and transformation. They become disciples. They live out uh, with, with their, their, their faith with a missionary impulse. On the other hand, you go to a parish – and in the, the dominant culture is is minimalism and maintenance. Uh, mm. It's it, the greatest value is convenience. I want to be served. I want. Mm. I, it's got to be convenient. I want God in a box that I can bring out for one hour a week. You know, and and I, I just from that early time when I was a teenager, I saw this huge gulf, and I had a passion um, to see that that gap be closed. And when I first became a a, a, a priest, when I finally got ordained and I got my own parish. I remember just standing up there and looking out and thinking, my goodness, you know, two thirds of these people see they, it's like a zombie convention. <laughs> it's like, it's like wh- where's the fire? Where's the joy? Where's the, where's the zeal? Wh- where's the, where's the praise? I mean, half the people don't even open their, their, their lips to praise God. And, and there was just such a passion to see, like to see it come to life, to see what's dead come to life. And from the very start that that's been my goal as a pastor, I've been a pastor now for 16 years in the different parishes I've been in. And in the end, renewal, a renewed parish happens when people encounter Jesus in a personal mm-hmm. way, in a life-changing way, experience the power of the Holy Spirit. There's no other way. And when enough people in a parish uh, have this experience, uh, things begin to tip. The whole culture begins to change. And I saw it in my first small country parish. I saw it in my first city parish. And I've seen it here where I am now in St. Benedict. Mm-hmm. So that's a really interesting idea that renewal or movements can come from outside, but your mission is to see them come from within, that you should be able to show up at a local parish and meet Jesus for real. Yes. This is, this is what the <laughs> what church... What a novel thought. What a novel <laughs> thought. This, this is what the church is meant to be. I, I remember when I went to the parish I had before this one, I mean, and at this point I had been using Alpha uh, from the first time I was, I was mm-hmm. a, a pastor... A friend of mine came to me and said, "James, I found this program. You're going to love it." Uh, uh, and I and I got it and I did and I've been using it ever since because it's been, you know, the best bang for the buck in terms of seeing changed lives. And I went into this new parish, and there were a lot of good people. There were a lot of on fire people who had encountered the Lord, who were living as disciples. But when I went to speak to them, uh, they were all they they were finding their their community outside the parish. They were going to these movements midweek, these parachurch organizations. That's where they were finding their community. That's where they were doing their mm. discipleship. They were serving in ministry and all of this. They basically came to the parish uh, just, just for the weekend. And I said to them, how are we ever going to see God move in our midst in the parish if if we're all invested in these things out here? And I asked them, I went to every single one of them. I said, will you come and put your ministry time and your in community time in the parish to try to get something going because I, I believe that that we need models of churches that are of parish churches that are alive and dynamic to inspire others uh, and 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 they said yes and uh, that was the beginning of of, of a, re- a movement for renewal that began to happen in that church as well. This isn't like you know a testimony podcast or that sort of thing. It's a leadership podcast. But I got to ask, what was that encounter when you were seventeen years old? What changed <laughs> for you? Yeah, well, I was uh, I had, was 
living a bit of a wild lifestyle and partying and doing raised Roman Catholic was yes I was raised uh, Catholic and my father I got into a little bit of trouble with the um, with the police and okay. uh, my father forced me to go on this stupid religious weekend and <laughs> on the on the Saturday night I, I just had a power a life-changing encounter with of God's unconditional love which I now know I was at a powerful experience of the of of the Holy Spirit, I can go to that spot and say, that's where I was sitting. I just had this, just this life changing experience of, of God's love. And, uh, from the next day onwards, I was a different person and people at school weren't quite sure what had happened to me, but it was, it was, it was the beginning of a, of a journey. Of course, the first of inversions and I still need many more, of course. Yes. Don't we all, don't we all, you know, it's one of those things. I think we're all, there's a moment at which you get saved, but I think you're being converted daily almost, you know, sanctified is what the ancients would say. Now, James, you've spent time in some fascinating circles. So uh, I know that you've hung out with leaders like Rick Warren, Nicky Gumbel, and even the Pope. Tell us about how this movement that you've started has um, really caught on. And then we're going to dig into the movement. And I think you'll see every small church leader, every mid-sized church leader, every stuck church leader, you're going to learn a lot in this time together. I, I think from that passion that I had to see a, a model of, a, of a, a church, a local church that's a discipleship, a disciple-making machine and, and setting people up, equipping them to live out missionary lives, uh, I began to look around and see where is that actually happening? And, and mm-hmm. for the most part, it was non-Catholic churches. Right. And there are a few Catholic churches where I saw it ha- happening. And the question for me really was, well, what are they doing? What, what are they doing? What do they have in common? And... And one church that really has impacted me, us here at St. Benedict Parish, is, of course, Holy Trinity Brompton yes. Church in, in London, the, the the home church of Alpha. So I, I think just by using Alpha and getting involved slowly in regional conferences, then national conferences, then eventually international ones, and going over there and really becoming friends with them and getting to know them. And, and you know, I've I've gone on to, to trips with, with, with Nikki and spoken at conferences with him and, and just getting to know everyone there and, and really learning the big picture of, mm. of, of, of what underlies Alpha. And um, that has been a huge impact on us. I mean, I've been learned a lot from from Rick Warren, I've met him a few times, just just briefly. Uh, but I've got incredible respect for the man. He's uh, he's an amazing leader. He's got an amazing heart to help other other leaders. And and I found so much of his materials to be very very profound. And and to say how do we how do I bring this into my context as a Catholic? And and for the most part, it doesn't need a lot of changes. It just it, you can bring it in. It works really really well. We've been very influenced by these churches. I'd say, if if anything, we're probably more of a our DNA is more reflective of of Holy Trinity Brompton sure. in terms of our basic strategy for discipleship and the centrality that we have for Alpha. We use Alpha as our primary interface with the unchurched, as opposed to the weekends. You know, the the weekend experience, and and um, so that's that's it's been such a such a rich experience to be really blessed in grace. Uh, by these wonderful men and women. That's that's incredible. So in the time that you and I have spent together, and we've had a few conversations, it occurred to me that a lot of the issues the Protestant Church is facing are the same as the Roman Catholic Church. And we're not going to, let's not talk about the Vatican versus, you know, denominational headquarters or whatever. Let's sure. just talk about on the ground, boots on the ground, local churches. What similarities do you see? Well, it was one of the things that surprised me because I'd often... 
you know, with a lot of my evangelical friends would always say, well, yeah, but, but like for us, we, we look at the evangelical churches and think you guys don't have the problems we have. You guys <laughs> out and it's very easy. We have a few. <laughs> and what, what a big surprise happened when when my book uh, was 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 out for a couple of months, and I began to hear from other leaders from different backgrounds who'd read the book, who said they found it very very helpful. And I was honestly really surprised. Um, really, I think the, the, there's one significant difference, and after that, the differences really disappear. And the first difference is that for the mainline churches, the first task of of for, for the leader is to, is not the first task is the it's the primary task is to transform culture mm-hmm. and culture of course is is um is what you just accept and what you presume uh, is what you accept as being normative it's and like i said in catholic circles the parish church the norm was was minimalism it was uh, get me in and get me out don't ask anything of people don't challenge people don't rock the boat um you know, transformation wasn't celebrated. Uh, evangelization and discipleship. We've had uh, popes for the last twenty years calling the church to to embrace evangelization as its primary mandate to make disciples. And for the most part, it's fallen on deaf ears. That culture shift is the is the primary thing. And in churches in mainline, you, you you've got to the first task is to get momentum on a on a developing a culture of evangelization and discipleship. Now, in many evangelical churches, you already have that to start. Mm-hmm. You can kind of, because of the ecclesiology, you've, you you know... You can almost harken back to like, this is what we should be, right? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Well, I mean, I, I think there's there's a sense of, in, in, in other church backgrounds, is, well, people know this is what we should be doing. Exactly. Yeah. In, in my background, people are like, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're, you're introducing new ideas. Yeah, this is this is this doesn't sound very Catholic, Father. You know, uh, even though these words have been used and the, and the, these calls have been going out for decades from from popes and different church leaders. You know, so that's the that's the first task, and we found that you know, cultural shift in an organization takes time. Uh, there's there's no you can't you can't um, you can't fast track it. And and uh, we used uh, Alpha was probably our biggest tool to to bring about that cultural shift to normalize evangelization, conversion, transformation, testimonies, you know, people giving testimonies and, and actually celebrating changed lives. Um, um, but once you see that shift in the culture, then uh, the struggles that follow that, the challenges in leadership that follow that are practically identical. They're, they're the same. They're, they're the same. Because ultimately, what is it about? We're, we're, look, we're trying to bring people to Christ uh, and, and, and equip them for ministry to bring them to maturity and, and to see them live uh, mission lives. Yeah. And human beings are, tend to act like human beings no matter what. You know, and I think in in what you just said, too, I think a lot of mainliners can probably relate to that. You know, I spent over a decade in leading a mainline church uh, here in Canada, and it was the same thing. I mean, these are really tiny rural churches that survived on potluck suppers and, you know, garage sales and bake sales. And I remember one conversation a year into my time there, and I just said, like, does anybody talk about Jesus around here? And there was one old timer who just said, no, we never really do. You know, we talk about farming and we talk about potluck suppers and we talk about the church, but we don't talk about Jesus. And I said, well, we got to change that. Like, and so it felt like news to that culture. And of course, you know, we saw a lot of change over the years. And for sure, we became a church that was all about Jesus. But um, yeah, I, I, I can imagine a lot of stuck churches that are in, as you put it, maintenance mode. 
um, this might be a radical new idea that, hey, this is actually about Jesus and introducing people to him. Yeah, and, and by maintenance, certainly, uh, you know, we have to define what we mean by that. Uh, what do you mean by maintenance? I, I mean basically maintaining the flock. Right. Which, if you think about it, is actually a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, people, when they hear the word maintenance, they often think, well, you're talking about, you know, cutting your grass and right. keeping the lights on and, and, and taking care of the building and maintaining the building. But, you know, if, if, you ju- if maintenance is just what you do with, with your building, your flock is going to disappear. Because we're we're in a toxic culture, we're in an anti faith culture. There are wolves circling the flock, and and people get picked off one by one. They get picked off. They just disappear, disappear. There's a lot of people in our churches, more people than we care to admit, who have one foot in and one foot out. Mm. So the task of of maintenance is 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 huge. You know, people say about the weekend experience, you know, to maximize it. Uh, that you know, and they talk about uh, doing that to become a, a, a missional church. And this is true. You can't be a missional church unless your weekend experience is, is, is maximized. But I'm convinced, no, no, <laughs> you better maximize your weekend experience if you want to be a maintenance church. Because mm. if, if we don't start having dynamic preaching and yeah. great music and, 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 and hospitality, even the people we've got are not going to stay. Yeah, it's a, it's a slow bleed. That's an interesting definition of maintenance, you know, that you've got, because I think a lot of people would identify with that. Like to tread water, if you're a church of 100, to stay at 100 actually is work. You have to do a good job to keep those 100 people. If you have 500, you got to do a good job to keep those 500 people. Yeah, and even to, to you know, to, to help them, you know, the, the, your current members, you know, to, to, to be disciples, you know, to grow and to be spiritually maturing but of course the danger to that is is that um it becomes inward focus it becomes self-serving mm-hmm. turned in upon itself if all you do is serve your own members and help them to come to maturity and there's no interest there's no outward looking there's no desire to bring new people to christ then there's something fundamentally wrong there's something very 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 wrong because of course the authentic encounter with jesus i mean as long as you're actually praying to the real jesus yeah it's going to lead you to want other, to, to want to bring others to, to him, sure. and and uh, and but but yet you see so many churches that this just seems to be doesn't seem to be a primary concern, and and I often say to our own people, you know, uh, the difference between a church and a club, you know, a club exists to serve its own members, and too often the church functions as a club. Its primary value for the leadership is to serve is to serve the members. Hmm. So that's maintenance mode. Why do you think churches get stuck in maintenance mode? Why do you think we lose our our zeal or never discover it unless there's some kind of disruption? I think um, I'm convinced that we need um, a renewed theology of the work of the Holy Spirit in the church in our in our Christian lives. I mean, there's it's the Holy Spirit who comes in power who stirs our hearts for mission, and I think that's a real uh, important starting point. Um, but I think it's just, it's very much human nature. I mean, we, we are selfish, sinful people. And, uh, and, and if, why should we be surprised when a bunch of selfish people get together that collectively they can become selfish and self-focused, which essentially is what a, what a, what a, what a maintenance church is. It's, it's about us and it's about our own convenience and my own needs. And, um, and and so it becomes a, a selfish community. So I think there's a drift that, that will happen in every single church towards this kind of inward focus. Pope Francis talked about this before he was elected Pope. He wrote his little he made a little speech and he put some notes and literally in the back of a napkin. And he he, he said that the church was sick. The church had become self-referential. He mm. said church 
in itself, of itself, and for itself. Think about those words, a church yeah. in itself, for itself, and of itself. It's not a church of the Lord. It's relying on its own strength. It's a church stuck in itself. You know, we mm-hmm. use our own our church lingo and our vocabulary and our Christianese and, and all these terms that, that are impenetrable to people on the outside. Um, and and then a church uh, for itself, hmm. which it, it's sick. He said, but you get, when this dynamic happens, the, the church becomes sick, so sick, because it's called to be we're called to be a missionary church. The, the church exists for the sake of mission. Yeah. So in your book, Divine Renovation, you outline some of the keys to renovating your church. Can you just walk us through a few of the foundational truths you think that probably are, are, are the most important for leaders to grab a hold of? Yeah, I, I think the the first key is is passion. You've got to start with passion because passion is what underlies vision, right? I mean, yeah. if, if you look around and you say, well, you know, the church needs to change. And hopefully your conviction that the church needs to change is, is, is rooted in the spirit of God stirring your heart and not just a, a desire for self-preservation. You know? mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. Uh, if we don't change, we're going to die. I mean, that's, that's just not good enough. That's hardly a missionary heart that's, that's driven by passion. But I think it really begins in the heart of a leader who has, who has to have passion uh, and, and allow that passion to shape a, a picture of the future. You know, Bill Heibel says, uh, vision is a picture of the future that produces passion, right? So, mm-hmm. but a lot of leaders have lost their capacity to be passionate. I've seen it. I've seen it all the time in the work I do with other le- leaders, Catholics and non non Catholics. Church leaders are are, are are exhausted. They're tired. They're they're beaten up. They're disappointed. They're broken hearted. Uh, and there's a whole spiritual warfare as well. Mm-hmm. And, and so our hearts need to be awakened with a, with that godly passion and. And often, you know, as, as, as many who are listening know, that often can be revealed to us through the discontent in our hearts. And I, I think back to my own experience, and it was that discontent and seeing the difference between parish life and what I experienced uh, on the side with, with these particular communities. And my discontent with the way things were revealed my passion. So I think if, if the leader doesn't, is not in touch with that passion, nothing's going to happen. So, you know, it was a while ago that you had your radical conversion, but your passion, I mean, if there's one thing, because I attended your service with my wife um, that day that we were in Halifax, that Sunday we were in Halifax, and that was over a year ago, but, you know, I remember it very, very clearly. And I would say if there's a word that really described your church, it was alive. Like it was alive. I've I've been in dead Protestant churches. I've been in dead evangelical churches. I've been in some dead charismatic churches. And I've been in a few dead Roman Catholic churches. Your church was alive. It was just, was welcoming. It was inviting. There was not a, a I mean, you definitely followed a liturgy, but there was life in the liturgy and passion and enthusiasm. How do you keep your passion strong you know, you've been in this, what, a decade or so in leadership? You've, you've been at this for a while. Uh, yeah, I've been a pastor for 16 years. Yeah. So I, I think prayer is essential. I mean, here's the thing. It's, it's like whether it's, you know, before preaching or preparing for, for, for preaching, you know, I always, I'm sure every leader who preaches has this struggle. You know, it's like, Lord, you know, I, I when I have to prepare for preaching, I have to resubmit myself to the Lord because I've, my rebellious heart is there all the time. And I, I know when I'm drifting spiritually from it at times, that's when the passion goes down. But the passion is when I'm, when I've, you know, when we're renewed in a relationship with the Lord and we really 
pray for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, I, I think... How do you keep your prayer life strong? <laughs> what, 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 are, what are some of your routines? Uh, often, I, I, often it's not strong. That's, that's part of my problem. <laughs> Welcome to the club. But yeah, I know a lot of us, a lot of, let's be honest, let's name the elephant in the room. A lot of us in leadership kind of know that we should be praying more than we are. And prayer is a struggle for me. I find it much easier to read my Bible than to pray. And I don't know why. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's that inner, inner part of it is, you know, offer yourself as a living sacrifice. And as someone once said, problem with living sacrifice is to keep crawling off the altar. Yeah. You know, that's, that's my story. And I think, um, just in, in the morning, I, I know that if I don't get prayer time in the morning, it's probably not going to happen dur- during the day. Sometimes in evenings, I can I can get some prayer time in um, is as well. Um, I I think that that spirit, you know, that God given passion is so key because uh, in the heart of a leader, there can often be discontent and impatience, and there's a fine line between it being a, a godly discontent and being sinful. Yes. Well, and I've experienced that. I've experienced a blurring of the line. I've experienced times when I, you know, I didn't feel like, you know, the bishop supported me enough or these people or those people. And I get frustrated with the system or frustrated with that. And my discontent becomes, becomes anger, becomes, Mm -hmm. uh, and I found many times I've had to repent of that. You know, I I think uh, by nature, I'm probably a bit more, I'm from Scotland originally, so I'm probably more passionate than uh it's got that hot celtic blood in, in <laughs> uh so i guess you know it's, it's personality driven i i think uh but that that passion is so key because and then the ability to dream to have imagination like imagine if you know and, and you have to constantly as a leader allow i say lord break my my imagination mold my imagination um give me a heart for for a, a mind to dream about what could be possible because God can God can do anything. God can do anything if he if there are people who are willing to say yes and to dream about that. Like what, like I say to leaders all the time, if if anything could happen, what would your church look like in ten years? And 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 what would it look like for you to to make it to make you so excited that you can't sleep at night? And a lot of the time, we don't even ask that question. We don't ask questions that good. Because we just think, well, it's just going to be, you know, 10% or 20% or 50% better than it is now. But what if anything was possible? Right. That's wow. right. So, and, but then there's the, there's the, the articulation of, of vision that's rooted in passion. Then the next key thing for a leader is to, is to communicate that vision. Because mm-hmm. oftentimes I'll, I'll, meet, I'll speak to a, a lot of priests and other leaders and they want to rush from, you know, from their own passion and vision immediately to coming up with a plan, you know, developing a strategy or even executing. It's like, no, no, hang on, hang on. Yeah. Unless you're starting a church from scratch, uh, which in Catholic circles is usually not going to happen or mainline <laughs> churches. It's usually about dead things, to, trying to see the Lord bring dead things back to life. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's a, it's an organic process. It's slow. And you you can't just rush to beginning to change things. You've got to share that passion, that vision with the people you serve and, and begin to win them begin to win them over. And you need to, you know, 30, 40% to be won over really before you really begin to implement major... How do you do that? How do, I like, okay, let's say, take you back a few years to when you started at St. Benedict's. Was it yep. an alive parish when you got there or it needed some renovation? Well, they had just built a brand new church. It had been three previously existing communities that came together into one and the previous pastor um, basically made, led them to, to a huge decision, and that was to submit infrastructure to mission. They mm-hmm. said, 
The current infrastructure, these three parishes, is taking us down. All of our resources are going into these buildings. For the sake of the mission of the church, we need to do this. And there was a lot of resistance. It was very painful for people to see the closure of their churches. But they built this brand new, beautiful building. And uh, within four months, within a few months of the building being opened, I was I became the pastor. Wow. And so I walk in on the first weekend. And it's a, a church filled with amazing people. Uh but there's not the average age is probably 60, you know, late 60 or, or early 60s. There's there's not been a lot of ministry happening because they've been so busy building the mm-hmm. actual physical building. There hasn't been a lot of evangelization. So it's it's it, it was still dying. Uh, even though They had this nice new church. And I came the first weekend, you know, people were <laughs> people were drawing a sigh of relief. They were saying, well, finally, all the change is over. <laughs> and I'm arriving and saying, uh, well, uh, guess what? As difficult as it has been, this change has been cosmetic. Because I asked the people this question, I said, what is to stop the decline that necessitated the the amalgamation and closure of these three buildings Mm -hmm. from continuing to be at work in our midst if all we do is come into this beautiful new place and do everything exactly the same as we did before? What's to stop it? The answer is nothing, nothing. If you're dying, you're, you're... you're you're still going to be dying. You know, renewal doesn't come by changing your address and and, and changing your furniture. And so I began to speak about this again, basically about cultural shift, about challenging uh, what we have come to believe is to be simply normative. The things we presume about what is normative for for Christian living and, and for in and, and for church. And I introduced Alpha right right at the beginning, and we took several. Uh, months to to train up people. I had been running Alpha at that point for about 10 years in various churches. And we put a call out for for people to come and be formed as a team. And our hope was to get 40, 50 people, 160 people training and 120 people completed training uh, that one time. And we've now run, I think, about 11 seasons of Alpha since I've been here. Each season, sometimes maybe two, three, four different uh, courses at a time. So we've seen thousands of people come through Alpha uh, in the last six years and so, seen, witnessed tremendous life transformation. It's It's been so exciting. That's incredible. And did you have resistance when you started introducing those changes? Like what happens when you cast the vision? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, well, people, the funny thing when you cast a vision... Uh, you know, if you say to people, do you want a church that's alive? People are like, yeah. <laughs> want a church that, that is attractive to young people and young families? Yeah. Do you want a church that's incredibly hospitable and welcoming and engages people and helps them to grow spiritually? Yeah. Do you want a church that's evangelical? Do you want this kind of church? Everyone wants that kind of church, but no one wants to do what it takes. <laughs> you got it. You know, people want the change, but they don't want to change. <laughs> and, and, and it's when you begin Good. to implement the change, people are like, well, wait a minute. Uh, you're changing this. You're, you're ch- changing that. A lot of people were not comfortable with um, the fact that, you know, we talked a lot about Alpha. We, I, we talked a lot about evangelization, calling people to personal relationship with Jesus and experience of the Holy Spirit. We began to feature testimonies a lot because we want to, you know, your culture is shaped by what you celebrate, right? What do we celebrate? They were celebrating a building constantly. And it was a beautiful building and it was an incredible accomplishment what they did. But I have to say to people, hang on, hang on, hang on. You know, uh, buildings come and go. Jesus himself went into the temple and said, look at these stones. Not one will be left standing mm-hmm. upon another. You know, the, the, all scripture says about a building is 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 the people. You, you are the building. You are God's building. Uh, and, and so 
not disrespecting the work that, that had been done, uh, we began to change the focus of what we celebrate and began to feature testimonies at Mass, people talking about changed lives, encountering Jesus. And we do that a couple of times a year now. Uh, whenever we start an Alpha season, we always take two, three weeks and we preach about it and we feature testimonies. And a lot of people got uncomfortable with that. Some people mm. were resistant. Um, and I would say that, I, well, I got a lot of nasty letters, emails, mm. phone calls. You know, when we started to preach about giving, and oh, yeah. we, we started to do a, a series every single year. Well, the first year we did that, I get so much negative stuff from people. And But talking about evangelization, and the accusation was, well, we're okay with Alpha, but you're making it the most important thing. And I was like, yes, that's right. <laughs> when your ministry starts bringing people to Jesus and seeing transformed lives, I will make your ministry the most important thing. That's what I'll talk about. But this is the most important thing. This is what the church tells us. And it was great to have at that time Pope Francis and everything he was saying, because I could just blame Pope Francis. I just point to all the things he said <laughs> to back up what I was doing. But it was it was difficult. The other thing we did is that, you know, my preaching was a bit longer. Uh, I, so I, what would it be? 20, 25 minutes? No, not even that. I was like, normally it's about 18 to 20 minutes. But these are people who, who had preaching for like seven minutes, eight, right. eight minutes. And, and people were – see, in the church, we, we've, we've built models of pastoral care to feed people who are not hungry. Oh, that's so good. Say that again. We've built we've models built of pastoral models of pastoral care to feed people who are not hungry. And you've got this culture of minimalism, right? So it's it, – and the hungry people, the people who have been awakened and have a hunger, they're dying. They're getting frustrated. That's why so many leave and join non-Catholic churches because mm. we, we cater literally to the people who have no hunger. And as a parent, mm. the parents listening, if you've ever – So good. You, know, you labor to prepare a meal for your kids and they've been eating junk food or something and they're not hungry. It's very, very frustrating. It's, it's very discouraging. So even things like you know mass being 10 minutes longer – uh, yeah, people left, uh, introducing contemporary music. Yeah. Uh, Cause you've got a band. People left. Yep. We, we got a band. We got a, we got a great band and, and, um, and you've so, got like screens and the whole deal all together. We probably saw 40% of the people who were in that church when I got there have left. Wow. 40%. And how did that make you feel as a leader? Uh, terrible. Um, well, there were a few people who I was quite glad to see them go. I mean, they were the other thing we talked about, we started in terms of cultural transformation, we started to speak about expectation. We said, you know, we expect God to work powerfully in people's lives. We expect life transformation. We we actually believe that everyone has a gift. And so we started to say we we expect every parishioner to be involved in ministry in some way, to everyone do something according to their gifts. And we expect everyone to be growing spiritually. And we challenged people. We said we're going to ask everyone to do one thing, to be involved in one discipleship program uh, per year. And we we had altar calls. We, we we called people forward to make a commitment before the Lord. Well, that drove a lot of people away. They were like, I, I don't I'm going to go. I'm going to join the parish next door because they don't expect anything of me. They don't talk to me about spiritual growth. They don't talk to me about giving. They don't talk to me about serving and they don't talk about this evangelization stuff all the time. <laughs> So a lot of people left, and and I got, like I say, at first I would get nasty letters or uh, anonymous things, and I would read them, and I'd be, I'd reread them and reread them, and 
It was the dumbest thing I ever did. It was like, why am I doing this? You know, <laughs> you're, get, you're pouring salt into your gaping wound, right? I, I could still get probably three positive letters for every negative one. But the positive ones I'd read and throw, put in the garbage because I didn't yeah. want to affect my ego. You know, I want to stay humble. <laughs> but these negative ones I'd read over and over. And it would it would it was like a kick in the stomach and a kick in the head. And yeah. after a while, I realized this is the dumbest thing. So I made it very clear. If you send anything that's anonymous, I'm not going to even read it. In fact, the secretary doesn't even give it to me. She just throws it away. Yeah. It's not that people I invite people's in, input, but it was very difficult. But I'll tell you. Uh, it's the, probably the best thing that ever happened. And we noticed uh, by the third year, the fourth year, that's when numbers kind of went down. We were we were probably a couple of hundred people less wow. on a weekend than we were when I first got there. So you, how many people would be attending on a weekend when you got Anywhere there? We're between 1,500 and 1,800 people now. Yeah. So think about that. All, all, you know, that's a mega church in Protestant terms. That's just like normal for Roman Catholics. What I love too is I just got to say you're doing altar calls, but you actually have an altar. That's just so cool. Anyway, <laughs> you got a big altar. <laughs> I just got to say that. Like we always talk about that in evangelical world, but nobody has an altar. Anyway, all right. <laughs> it's, it's so, so true. But it is. <laughs> what ended up happening is the the, the the people who were grouchy and grumpy and complainers. You know, of course, they're the ones that contribute nothing and really do nothing. And it was the best thing that ever happened. Our our church became a much happier place, and and their and their their places have now been filled. So right mm. now we're about the same numbers as we were when when I first came here, and over fifty five percent of the people in church today were not members of this church yeah. uh, six years ago, and many of them were not going to church at all. Yes. So we have. I look out now in the front rows. There's tons of people who entire families who have had conversions and we just rejoice in that because they're it's so much more life-giving than than these kind of consumer catholics who just wanted to consume religion light uh at their own convenience and weren't committed to anything beyond you know doing the bare minimum so they think they can get into heaven wow that that is so powerful and you know i gotta say too even when i was there like lots of young families like you've got like babies, toddlers, infants, I mean, all of that. And uh, so you probably saw your demographic shift as well, haven't you? Yeah, we've seen, uh, you know, things have gradually become lower and lower. And another key thing that we saw, and we really noted this about a year ago, is our leadership course. So all of the our ministry leaders, mm-hmm. we do um, three, time, three, four times a year, we do a, a leadership summit with our own ministry leaders and everyone that they're that they're apprenticing because we we're encouraging every single ministry to have a every ministry to have its own leadership pipeline. Sure. And we gathered these leaders together, and about two years ago, we noticed that that sixty percent of our leaders uh, were all new. Wow, they're all new to the church. They were not members of the church when it first opened. A lot of them are people who were not going to church when the church first opened. So we're seeing this this gradual uh, transformation from inside out. And a lot of them are young. And when I first came to the parish, even though there was a lot of stuff happening, a lot of activities, because three churches joined into one and no one wanted to give up their ministries, mm-hmm. uh, most of the ministry leaders were, were, were much older. And that was, I remember my first week thinking, oh my goodness, if we don't address that issue of, of seeing renewal in, in terms of leadership and ministries, this whole thing is gonna go belly up in a few years. 
Wow. Now that's interesting that you've got a leadership pipeline because I think a lot of people, the stereotype, of course, and we all live off our stereotypes, evangelicals and mainliners and the whole deal, but be like, well, the priest's role is to do religion for the people, but you see your role as giving ministry back to the people, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, identified in the book, um, see, my book was was more of kind of a proposition. It was it was written to kind of stir things up. And it, mm. it seems to have done that. It's been <laughs> translated into French and Spanish. There's a German translation coming. That's It's sold close to, I think, 30,000 copies in all the different languages. Wow. But there's a lot of theology in it because I really believe that uh, underneath everything we do, there's a theology. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the theology that that is underneath what we do pastorally uh, is not our official theology. <laughs> we can all have official theology that sounds great. Like as as a Catholic, I've got, I could show you all the amazing things said in the Catechism and by popes about what a parish should be and what the church is meant to be and what it means to be a disciple and what it means to be a, a missional church. And it's all beautiful and great. But then you look at the reality, and there's a huge gulf yes. between what we say we believe and, and what we actually do. And what we do is actually more shaped by uh, by an operational theology. I, I like it, liken it to, you know, the the um, software on on my phone that runs my phone. Sure. There's an operational software in all of our churches, and one of the things that I had a chapter in the book where I identified these things, and one of them is what I call Pelagianism. Uh, that, that of course is basically salvation by works. Everyone knows, of course, that's what Catholics believe, right? right? <laughs> which we don't, we don't, I'm just, I'm just joking. Uh, gotcha. and, but, but a lot of, a lot of Catholic people, a lot of people in our culture are Pelagian. They, they don't basically, go, I'm going to go to heaven because I'm such a good person and I, and I do religious things. And right. for Catholics, that's a heresy that that's against their teaching. But, but that is where that a, lot would surprise of, a lot of Protestants, it really would. You know, because it's human. It's, it's, yeah. God's mercy and God's grace is, is actually quite scandalous. It's quite offensive to our human, our innate sense of justice, right? Mm-hmm. We want to justify ourselves. But the other major theological problem in our church right now is clericalism. Yes. And that's what we have to overcome. And clericalism, I, I, I thought, of, thought up a definition. Uh, I, I, think it was, I think it was me that, that, that came up with this. But basically, it's, I described it as the appropriation by the clergy of what is proper to the baptized. Mm. So you have the clerical caste, whether it's a priest, nun, a minister, or even a lay person in ministry. If if your self-understanding in ministry as a leader is to do the work of ministry on behalf of the people, you've embraced the clerical model. Whereas, you know, Which is heretical. It's to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the church. And and so we've inherited this culture where, where basically the religious professional, the minister, the, the priest— basically lives the fullness of the Christian life for the people because they somehow can't do it. They, mm. You be a spiritual surrogate. And so I don't have to serve. I don't have to do ministry. I don't have to be a disciple because I don't have to mature. I can stay in my immaturity because you're going to be the mature one for me because I can't be that. Mm. Uh, and I'm not going to go in mission either because that's your job. Right. And one of the things that happened over 50 years ago in the Catholic Church was the Second Vatican Council that called together bishops from all around the world, and they met for many years. They said many things, but everything that that was that event represented could be boiled down to two truths that they reaffirmed: the the universal call to holiness and the universal call to mission. Hmm. Now, call to holiness and mission were not new, but 
the universal, meaning it's not rooted in ordinary, it's rooted in baptism. Mm. Baptized are called to holiness. All the baptized are called to mission. And, and this is not new, but it was forgotten because of this clerical culture. So we still come up against it. Um, you know, pastoral care. Well, first of all, you know, we, we've tried to redefine pastoral care. Most churches, when you say pastoral care, people think, you know, visiting the sick, the dying. But I think the primary task of pastoral care is, is, to, is to present everyone mature in Christ. Paul says, you know, that is to see mm-hmm. people up. Uh, uh, caring for the sick is one thing that we do, but the the reason we sh- we care for sheep is this: we feed the sheep uh, to see them grow and, yeah. and and grow up and become big and strong. Um, but even the struggle we say with visiting the sick, there's always still this expectation that uh, that if I'm not doing it personally, then uh, that somehow they're being they're being gypped, you know, mm-hmm. and trying to break people of that of that way of understanding. We certainly. In our tradition, you know, there's sacramental ministry that only I can do. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the teaching of, of the Catholic Church is that the, the job of the priest is threefold after the, the threefold ministry of Christ, who is priest, prophet, and king. So I'm called to to celebrate the sac- Actually, number one task, the documents of the church say, is to preach the word of God. Mm. Number two is to celebrate the sacraments. And number three is to lead God's people, to lead. So mm. uh, preaching celebration of sacraments and leading those are essential to priesthood to my role as a, as a priest but we've inherited a church culture that says that plus everything else is really the, the priest job yeah that's it's a huge problem and this is a problem also in non-catholic churches. oh absolutely i mean protestant churches it's that whole idea that the pastor does everything and i mean this this translates a hundred percent now you're part of a denomination just like most listeners would be um has it been, a lot of people tend to blame their denomination, right? It's like, oh, well, you know, the so-and-so denomination won't let me do this, or that's just not our way of doing it. How have you navigated that? Because you've said, you know, multiple times already in our conversation that what you're doing in the local parish is not normal. So have you had resistance from your denomination or from your, your, your tradition? And how have you handled it? I've had mostly incredible support, to be very, very honest, from my own bishop, who has been very permissive. He's given permission for everything I've done. Uh, wow. When, before I went to this church, I asked him permission. I said, look, I've, I've, I'd like your permission for St. Benedict Parish to be a pastoral laboratory uh, for, you know, 10, 12 years of experience of making a lot of mistakes and trying things and taking risks and all the things I've learned from other churches, including non-Catholic leaders. He asked me to put something in writing for him, which really was the beginning of the book. Mm-hmm. And he read it and he said, absolutely, you've got my complete support. And he's been supportive all along the way. I've um, had incredible support from other bishops and other leaders. And, uh, of course, I have to say if the, from the top down, if you look at the writings of, of, of Pope Francis and of others, there's nothing I'm doing that's not there. It's not yeah. – it, it's, it's it, we're doing what we're being asked. To, I'm doing trying to do what we've been asked to do. The, the the problem when it comes to uh resistance in the in the Catholic Church is not therefore the, the leaders themselves, it's the culture, it's the yes. dominant culture. Because you know, as Peter Drucker's the culture eats strategy for breakfast, it it, mm-hmm. it, it, it it will you can have the best plan, the, be, the best people, the best practice, whatever, if you don't. But the, if you don't address the culture, the culture will kill everything. Yes. And so that culture of maintenance uh, is really the hard thing 
to overcome. That's what's frustrating. That's what kind of sometimes drives me crazy. Uh, we've, it's not our theology. It's not our f- official theology. Sometimes it's the operational theology that we have, and it's the dominant culture that, that, that sometimes is difficult. But I've had um, great reception. You know, last year probably had over 90 requests to go and speak to groups of priests, uh, mostly in, in the United States and in Europe, uh, some in Latin America. And so we can't we're not able to re- we're not able to respond to these requests. That's why that's why we had the conference that we had that we had mm-hmm. uh, back in June, the beginning of June. We had 600 leaders come from all over the world, uh, and it was hosted right here, and it was an amazing experience. It's why we do the podcast, the Divine Renovation podcast, and to try to respond to some of these uh, requests. So mm-hmm. I, I have to say that the response so far has been has been enormous, and it's been incredibly positive. There's really been no criticism at all uh, from from any of the leadership in my church uh the difficulty has been the dominant culture though that yeah. that's a struggle so you've you've really identified the situation a lot of leaders listening are in they're in a stuck culture they're in maintenance mode they're either you know stuck and dying or just treading water and maintaining the flock but not really reaching anybody so if a church is stuck in maintenance mode what are some good first steps like where would you say okay start here I, I think, you know, I, I say to to other pastors, you know, if you're going to start a divine renovation, you've got to be, you got to start by asking the big questions. Mm-hmm. You know, what's it all about? Like, what's the point? Like, why are we here? What What's the church meant to be? Well, what is mission and what is the nature of mission? And we've got to really have conversion of heart. And, and I, I think it's got to, it's got to begin with, with, with preaching. Uh, I think, uh, for the first year, say a church leader saying, "Okay, we want to see, we want to turn, we want to see a change." You, you've got to, for the first year, probably at least every third weekend, I I preached what loosely I would call a visioning homily. Uh, so did I. My first two years, yeah, like yeah, over, it's, it's, and over and over and over, over again, and over and over and over again, you just because preach it, vision. Yeah, you preach. That's so that's your starting point. You, you haven't got any guests anyway. You might as well just talk to the flock. Right, and and to to. With your staff uh, and, and your and your, your your staff team, as you begin to build a staff team, bring people on board who have your vision, and then begin to look at your leadership core because you know where there is two visions, there's division, and uh, you've got to you know we want people leading uh, ministries who are on board with the vision, people who are toxic, who are not with with the vision. You've got we've got to help them to move on, move out of leadership. It's not that they're not welcome in our church, mm-hmm. but they're we don't want we don't want to. Uh, increase the influence of of these kinds of folks. Yeah. So I think that's that's the starting point. And then you've got to give people a taste for it. That's why within a couple of months we started doing Alpha. And when and we're we're always very careful to say to churches, be careful not to just put your membership through Alpha. A lot of churches do that. They'll they'll run their they'll say, well, we're going to put our membership through first, and then we'll start looking outwards. It it what inevitably happens is that after two three years, it just dies out because you never get to redo your first impression of something. Yep. And if you form your church uh, in using a tool like Alpha, which is meant to reach the unchurched, if people's formative experience of using that tool is sitting with a bunch of church people, having church talk, mm-hmm. they're never going to overcome that. So from the start, we always had about 20%. So we had about 80% church people uh, on Alpha, which I was happy with because a lot of the people in church 
had never been evangelized. They, they had faith, yeah. believed in God, but had never really had that personal encounter with Jesus or experienced the power of the Holy Spirit. And we saw a lot of life change happening there, a lot of conversion. It was so wonderful. But then also people from outside the church, uh, people who were coming to faith. And, and when you started to hear their testimonies, then people are like, wow, wow, this is actually, mm. wow, this is, this is cool. Wow. Uh, and, and, the, and the more that you these things be, happen again and again, they become normalized and after over a period of time. And, and so you give people a taste of this and they realize, wow, it, you know, Jesus really does make a difference. And people today are still seeking. They're, they're still spiritually hungry. They're still capable of, of, a, of, of a faith response. That's so good. Well, there's some practical tips for people who are looking to get unstuck. Father James, anything else you want to share with us? Um, I, I think uh, the question of unity, I just want to say, Carrie, thanks for taking the time to do this. Um, I really, you know, John 17, you know, it's it's by uh, the high priestly prayer, prayer of Jesus, but by our unity, um, will will our our witness be, be powerful to the world, that the world yeah. will know that, 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 that he and the Father are, are one. And I think there's been a huge realignment in, in the church in the last 20, 30 years. I see it cutting through traditional lines of, of division, you know, the, the Catholics and, and, and Protestants. There's, I, if, if think of that traditional dividing wall as, as, a, as, as, um, as a vertical line, it's now horizontal because it cuts through all traditions, and the and the ultimate is, are are we, are we Christians who embrace the mission of Jesus Christ, go and make disciples? Or are we not? Is is there something? Do we have something for the world, or do we not? And if you're not convinced, uh, then then we really are planets apart. But if if we are if we're ministering and, and laboring out of that conviction. Uh, then we truly stand shoulder to shoulder and we need to learn from one another. I, I don't think any one tradition in terms of engaging the culture and evangelizing and making disciples, none of us have got it. I've got it all figured out nope. and we need to learn from one another. And so I want to thank you for taking this time. And I, I just want to say that we need to continue to put aside any, you know, the, the biases that we sometimes have. It doesn't mean there's not a place for legitimate theological dialogue and debate. Oh, yeah. Uh, but I actually have a, I actually have a, a, a Wesleyan pastor on, on, on my staff. Do you really? Yeah. That's awesome. He's been with us for two years and it's, it's, it's amazing. It's great. He's, uh, he, often on weekends he goes and preaches at, at, at various churches, but he's helping us uh, basically align all systems towards mission. Great. And it's been an amazing experience of, 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 of profound unity, uh, and celebrating our common mission. So I just want to encourage the leaders to to continue to uh, to seek that kind of unity. Well, I know when we met last year, I felt an immediate kindred spirit, shared ideas, and I'm so glad that uh, you would be a guest on my podcast. But so thankful for what you're doing, not just for your church, but for the wider church. And thank you so much, Father James. Hey, people are going to want to know more. Uh, the book is called Divine Renovation. You released it, what, a year, two years ago? Uh, August, uh, just almost two years ago, yes. Yeah, yeah, 2014. So make sure you pick it up. Uh, regardless of your denominational background, you're going to find some very universally applicable things. Because as you said, we're all people and we're all on the same mission. We're all trying to figure it out. And what about a website? Where can people find you online? DivineRenovation.net. That's got our, our, our podcasts are there. There's a new book that I just put out called the Divine Renovation Guidebook. It's more yes. of a how-to. And uh, there's a lot 
of other resources on on that website and at Twitter at FG Mallon. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Father James Mallon. Really a joy to have you on the podcast today. Hey, Carrie. God bless you. Thanks so much. Well, I think you'll know why I love James Mallon so much. I mean, wasn't that uh, just an incredible conversation? And he's such a great leader. Speaking of conversations, hey, did you know that next week we're back with Louis Giglio? And I have the most fascinating chat with Louis about how to preach in a way that really connects with young adults. And here's what's super encouraging. If you're an older leader, like, you know, and you're maybe you're not older, but 40s, 50s, 60s, we go through why like John Piper actually still connects with millennials and college students. We talk about how it is that Louis stays passionate in his leadership. So he's back on the podcast next week. I'd say that's a pretty good reason to subscribe. Preachers, you will not want to miss this conversation. I took great notes. And then we got some other pretty amazing guests coming up too. If you haven't subscribed yet, I'd encourage you to do it. We have Jared Hogue from Church on the Move, James Emery White, who has got a fascinating conversation on the generation after the millennials. Isn't that cool? And then Greg McEwen, author of Essentialism, going to be an early January guest. And there is a lot more. Mark Batterson, and so much more coming up on the podcast. So make sure you subscribe if you haven't done that. If you would be so kind as to leave a rating and review, I would be extremely grateful. And Canadians, have you discovered the Canadian Church Leader Podcast? I came out with the monthly episode last week. You can just search for that or go to the show notes, kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 118. And we are on Google Play and iTunes with that. And just remember, you got the lowest rates ever for the High Impact Leader course. And those are going to go away on Thursday, December the 15th, just two days from now. So if you haven't acted, go to thehighimpactleader.com or kerryneuhoff.com and you can find all the information there. And I really, really want to see you get your life and your leadership back in 2017. So anyway, we're back next week with Louis Giglio. Really excited for that. Thanks so much. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.